Most of us have seen movies that involve some kind of mirage. It's a hero or a heroine wandering in the desert, running low on supplies, seen off in the distance across the sand dunes what appears to be a beautiful and magnificent body of water, maybe surrounded by palm trees. And it seems to be some distance away, but just the vision of it keeps the person moving forward, ever grasping to that moment when they can, when they can feel the exhilarating uh, feeling of diving into that water. So they walk and they walk and they see and they, and they thirst and their thirst grows and their intensity uh, grows ever stronger. And, and when they get there, they, they sometimes, in the movies anyway, they dive into the sand and, and you see them throwing the sand up in the air like they're splashing the water. And then all of a the sudden they come to the realization that it's just a mirage, that it's just sand, that there's no water there at all. And you can sense in the, in the character the sinking feeling that maybe this is all that's left for them. It's just a mirage. You know, the American dream is a mirage. It's a fantasy. People will travel sometimes from all around the world for the American dream. And we live in the United States. We, we live our lives trying to grasp the American dream. The American dream uh, consists of a, a meaningful profession, a spouse that will love us and that we can love, children, a home, a safe neighborhood, a meaningful life. And for many people, that is the American dream, and that's exactly the way that Satan wants it to be. There's nothing wrong with those things. A, a, a loving relationship, a, a meaningful profession, living in a secure neighborhood. But if you have all of that and you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. That's what we learned from our passage this morning. In fact, I want to direct your attention to Exodus 33 and 34. We're going to spend most of our time in Exodus 33. And I want you to notice with me first that God's blessings without God's presence is no blessing at all. It's a mirage. It's like the American dream. It's like a secure 401k. It's a life where all the pieces of the puzzle seem seemingly fit together. And yet unbeknownst to the person who has all of what the American dream has to offer, they don't have God. Jesus put it this way, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, he'll give a lot of things, won't he? Particularly his or her life in exchange for their soul. Well, what I want you to notice in these opening verses is that, that Moses did not want the blessings of God without the presence of God. Remember two weeks ago that Moses is up on Mount Sinai and as he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, the, the children of Israel are constructing a golden calf and they're making it an idol. They'll bow down to this idol. They, they say this idol will lead us into the promised land. This idol will go before us. It will protect us. This idol is our God. So they took their gold. They took their trinkets. They melted them down. They constructed this idol. They had 
the, they had the dream, but they didn't have God. Beginning in verse one, then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. So he's going to send an angel, an angelic being. The angelic being is going to clear the way for them going to drive out the, the opposition and the enemies of Israel and they're going to live securely and they're going to live in a land flowing with milk and honey, but God's not going to be with them. That is, the American dream seems absolutely and completely satisfying until you're on your deathbed and then you begin to realize, what have I given my life for? And many of those are very good things, but a good life without God isn't a life at all. It's a delusion. It's a mirage. And so God says, I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel. You'll have the land. You'll have the blessings. You'll have the home. You'll have the job. You'll have the career. You'll have the family. You'll have the spouse. But I'm not, gonna, I'm not going with you. And sometimes you have all of those things and we don't even realize that God is not with us. We think the blessings of God are God, but the blessings, of, the blessings of this life may not be a gift from God at all. They may be a distraction or a detour from God himself. And so we see beginning in verse four, the people are just, are just overwhelmed with sorrow. God is giving them a land flowing with milk, milk and honey, but he's not going to be there. And they're, and, they, and they're mournful. Look in verse 4. When the people heard this word, they went into mourning. And none of them put on his garment, garments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your garments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So God makes it clear. If you want me to be with you, then you need to be my people. And the people enter into mourning. They rid themselves of the things that seem so precious and, and uh, ornamental to them. But God is not a God that dispenses cheap grace. God wants us. He wants all of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was martyred under the Nazi regime just shortly before the concentration camps were, were liberated, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote one of the most famous books of the 20th century for Christians, The Cost of Discipleship, talks quite a bit about cheap grace. And you see, the, the Israelites, 
The Israelites wanted God, but they wanted God on their terms, not his terms. God intended to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. He intended to go there with them. But they wanted to go on their terms. They wanted a God they could construct. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted a God they could feel. They wanted a God that was visible. That's not the kind of God that God is going to be. This is what Bonhoeffer had to say about cheap grace. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And so they wanted God, but they wanted him in their terms. They wanted God they could control, a God they could manipulate, a God they could see, a God they could touch. But that's not the kind of God he would be. If they wanted God, then they would have to approach God on his terms and they would have to worship the God that exists and not the idol, which is a, which is a human creation, which is not a God at all. See, God's blessings without God's presence is no blessing at all. We may go home to a nice home in a beautiful neighborhood, to a lovely family, but God is peripheral to our lives. God's on the fringes of our lives. God's not at the center of our life. Those aren't blessings, they're distractions. God wants us, but he wants us on his terms, not our terms. Don't let God's blessings be a distraction to you from God's person. That was the problem the Israelites had. The second thing I want you to notice is this. God's blessings without God's people is no blessing at all. See, Moses, he doesn't want God with him if God's not going to be with the people. That is, God will say to Moses, I am, will be with you. And Moses is going to say, I want you to be with us. They have a meeting. It's in a, it's in a tent. It's called the tent of meeting, interestingly enough. It's not the tabernacle, but it's the tent of meeting. And as I, as I read some verses to you, beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 11, you can follow along in your Bible in just a moment. It's very interesting. I want you to notice a couple of things. One is, Moses... That first, the tent is outside the camp, not inside the camp. It's outside the camp, not among the people. Secondly, Moses goes in the tent, but God doesn't go in the tent. To me, that's very interesting. God sends Moses in the tent, but Moses doesn't go. But God doesn't go in the tent. It's it's going to be completely different when they build the tabernacle. When they build the tabernacle, the tabernacle will be among the people, not outside the people. It'll be among the community, not outside the community. God will be in the tabernacle, which is a, which is a tent that's constructed for him, which is going to be something of a, his dwelling place among his people. He'll be in the tabernacle, not outside the tabernacle. That's what God is moving them toward, living in their presence, living among them. 
And so verse 7 says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called, he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance. And so, it's an interesting scenario. It's going to be completely different when the tabernacle is built. When the tabernacle is built, it will, the tent will be among the people. God will dwell in the tent. Uh, but even that is transformed in the new covenant. In their day, God was outside them. In our day, God is inside us. In their day, they would go to, to a tent to meet with God. We gather together to be in God's presence. But what's going to disturb Moses in these moments is that God is saying to him, I will be with you, but not them. I will be with you, but I can't, I can't be with them. Look with me beginning in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. That is, you're saying to me, I found favor in your sight. You're saying to me, you'll go with me. But what I want you to understand is that God's blessings without God's people is no blessing at all. Moses prays the most phenomenally sacrificial prayer that we've seen in Exodus. God's saying, I'll be with you. He says, it's not enough for me. It's not enough to have you with me. I need you with us, your people that you brought out of Egypt. I want you to be with us. It says in verse 13, now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may, that I may know you. He wants to know God and he wants to, God to know his people. And then the Lord said to Moses, he spoke to him face to face, just as a man speaks to a friend. So Moses responds to God's invitation to meet with him. And he says, I want you to be with us. I want you to be with us. Look with me beginning in, in verse 14. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, Do not lead us from here. 
For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people may be, dis- may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? He says, this is about your, your glory and your people. See, we live in a, we live in a day and time that is, that is so foreign to people who are, are now in the final stages of their life. We were out last night with, with my son Paul and his wife Laura and their daughter Lila and Paul and I were we're, we're talking about the fact that, that the settled disposition of maybe a majority of millennials is a lack of commitment. A lack of commitment to family, a lack of commitment to profession, and a lack of commitment to church. We still have a generation in our church who felt like that raising your family in the church was a substantial part of life. Now church is is kind of a casual thing for not just millennials. The millennials got it from the boomers. I'm a boomer, the generation that began to see that the church was not absolutely essential to the American dream. And it worked its way into the lives of the millennials. People have such a casual come and go attitude toward the church. People will talk to me often, oh, I don't have many relationships at church. And I'll ask them, okay, are you in a Bible fellowship group? Well, yes, but I will have already checked. You know, you only go 55% of the time. You're not going to have relationships when you only show up five out of every 10 Sundays. Do you ever come to the to Wednesday night activities? You know, we're very busy, and some people are very busy. Some people work right up to time. They're not able to attend, and that's just providential. There's nothing you can do about that. But other people just don't think it's worth the energy. Are you ever here on Sunday, Sunday nights for the building community nights where we invest so much money and time in? Eh, no, not really. So you're telling me you don't have many relationships in this church and it's the church that's the problem when you attend five out of 10 Sundays. It's insanity. Moses said, I don't want to go without them. Thank you for blessing me. I don't want to go without them. I want all of us to go with your presence into this land, he said. So the Lord said to Moses in verse 17, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. That is astounding. God is answering Moses' prayer which is on behalf of other people that God would not abandon them and forsake them because he loves Moses because Moses has found favor in his sight. 
that is an unbelievable incentive to intercessory prayer. You see, you may have a child on the West Coast in some kind of immoral relationship and they don't return your calls, they don't return your text messages, they don't send you an email, they won't pick up their phone when you call, they can't outrun your prayers. They may not care anything about God and they've built a golden calf. They're worshiping the golden calf. They're worshiping their profession or their sex or any number of other things that are a so-called part of the American dream, the new American dream anyway. They can't outrun your prayers. Moses is praying for an obstinate people. He's praying for a, a recalcitrant people. He's praying for an indifferent people. He's praying for an idolatrous people. And God answers Moses' prayer, not because of the people, but because of Moses' prayer. And Moses praying. That's an incentive to prayer. And it's a reminder, God's blessings aren't a blessing if they're without God's people. But Moses isn't finished. Moses wants God's blessings with God, God's blessings with God's people, but he wants more of God. In verses 18 through 23, he says, I'm on a roll, I'm getting some answered prayers, I don't think I'm gonna stop. So in verse 18, Moses prays one of the most bold prayers in all the Bible. I pray you show me your glory. That's a passionate prayer, a heartfelt prayer, a prayer that resonates throughout the Bible. And God says in response to that prayer in verse 19 that he's gonna do two things. Show me your glory. That's what Paul, or that's what um, Moses prays. And then God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. He says, I'm gonna manifest my goodness and my name. Show me your glory. He says, I'm gonna let you see my goodness and my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back but my face you cannot see. So he says, Moses, show me your glory. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you my goodness and I'm gonna reveal my name. You can't see my face. The chasm is just too great between you and me to see my, to see my, to see my glory in all of its splendor and wonder. So I'm gonna put you in a rock. I'm, I'm gonna put your face into a rock and then I'm going to pass by and then I'm going to remove my hand. You'll see the backside of my, my goodness and my name. Well, this has been the passion and the cry of God's people throughout the ages, to know God. To know him, to love him, to seek him, to serve him. Uh, the psalmist put it this way, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing I long for, one thing I seek, the psalmist said. 
Paul put it this way, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So notice the progression. He says, your blessing without your people is no blessing at all. So he pours his heart out on behalf of this obstinate people. And so God says, I'll go with you. And then he says, but that's not enough. I want more of you. I want to know you. I want to see your glory. It's been the passion of all of our hearts at various times in our spiritual pilgrimage. And for, for many who are here today, it's, it's where you are today. You're in a good place spiritually. And by God's grace, you're seeking his face, longing for his presence, desiring to, to know him. And you're enjoying the one who provides the blessings more than you are the blessings themselves. But for all of us at different places in our spiritual lives, our spiritual lives become a little bit stale. Now, I've experienced this so often in my own life where things become a little bit mundane. It's like being on a, on a spiritual treadmill. You're just going, you're going through the motions and you're going through all the right motions. You're doing so many of the right things. It's not like you're disconnected from the church. You're involved in the church because you love the people of God and you love the Son of God. It's not that you don't read your Bible. You do read your Bible. But there's, there's, something, there's something, mis, something amiss. In my better moments, when I'm in the period of staleness like that, in my better moments, I come to realize, you know, I can do all of the right things, but not long for the right person. The psalmist said one thing. Paul said that I may know him. Listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty, low land where I have wandered for so long. You see, the place, the place to begin when living in a desert or in a stale time spiritually is to begin with God. It's not that you're doing all the wrong things and you may very well do most all of the right things. None of us do all the right things at all the, all the right times. But you just begin to cry out, God, cause me to thirst, to long, to desire, to yearn for you. Uh, uh, help me to see that the mirage of the American dream is that it's a mirage. And then do a new work, a fresh work in me. 
So when you turn to chapter 34, God reveals his glory to Moses. God makes himself known to Moses. And God allows Moses to see him for who he really is. And Moses responds in worship and intercession. Look with me beginning in verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in, in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So he reveals himself to Moses by his deeds. Moses comes to understand who God is by what God does. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. We, we often focus on that part and we, and we wonder, is it really fair for God to allow the impact of a father's life to be so substantial that it affects his children and his grandchildren and maybe his great-grandchildren? Does a mom and dad have such monumental influence over the trajectory of their offspring that, that that's not almost too much to ask. Well, God isn't saying this about perfect people. He's saying it about ordinary people. What he's saying is your life really matters. It matters in the lives of your children. It matters in the lives of your grandchildren. It matters in the lives of your great-grandchildren. Now, this isn't an promise that is absolutely 100% because I know many people who have children and they were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They weren't raised in perfect homes. They weren't raised by perfect parents because there are no perfect homes. There are no perfect parents, but they go their own way. They do their own thing. They, they chase after their own lives. But what he's saying is the general principle is if you give your life to Jesus, wholly to Jesus, fully to Jesus, completely to Jesus, if you follow after God, there is, there is that very great likelihood that your posterity will be positively influenced. But, but notice what he, what he goes on to goes on to say he goes on or he said before that he talks about who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgressions and sin that is the kindness the greatness the splendor the forgiveness of God is so much more expansive so much more elongated temporally in time that he says it goes on and on and on he goes, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, it says in verse 7. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's who God is. That's what God is doing. And so Moses is teaching us. Moses is saying several things. Moses is saying, first, God's blessings without God's presence is no blessing at all. Second, God's blessings without God's 
people are no blessing at all. So God answers his heartfelt intercession. I will go with the people. They're obstinate. They're difficult. They're, they're, they are cantankerous at times. I will go with them. And then Moses says, thank you. But I don't want to stop there. I want more of you. I want as much as you as I can possibly have. I want to know you. And so God reveals himself to Moses. And at the end of the chapter, the most interesting thing, whenever Moses would meet with God, whether it's on Mount Sinai or the tent of meeting, when he would come down from Mount Sinai or he would come out of the tent of meeting, he would have the radiating glory of God's presence being irradiating from his, from his face. People would know that he had been with God. People would recognize Moses has been in the tent of meeting. Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. His face was radiating. But the interesting thing is Paul tells us it was a fading glory. Paul tells us it was a glory that didn't last. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says that Moses would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. His face was illuminated with the glory of God, but it faded, it diminished. That fading glory pointed toward an unfading glory. The glory of Moses' face was a reflected glory. It was bound to fade away. But it prepared us for, as I mentioned just a moment ago, it, it pointed us toward a glory that would be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. A glory that would never fade away. Now when, when Jesus poured himself into humanity, poured himself into a human body, became the God-man, his glory was veiled. With the exception of the Mount of Transfiguration, you may not be familiar with the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, but, but Jesus went up on a mountain and he took Peter, James, and John. And Jesus was met on that mountain by Moses and Elijah. Interestingly enough, Moses was there. Why Moses? Because Moses would come down from the mountain with the radiant glory of God shining from his face. He would come from the tent of meeting with the glory of God shining from his face and, and Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and on that mountain the glory of God radiated and transformed the humanity of Jesus that is his pre-incarnate the glory that he had before he became a human being his pre-incarnate before he became a man it shined forth with brilliance. Matthew says Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun. The interesting thing is that it was a temporary moment and when they came down from the mountain the, the glory was veiled once again. The Apostle John writing in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 1 the very first vision in the book, John has a vision of Jesus. 
It's a spectacular and phenomenal vision. He's grasping at words, ideas, thoughts to describe what Jesus looks like in his divinity and humanity because he is still the God-man. He's God in human flesh, even in heaven. And this is what John says. John said that his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. That is his glory is unfading. The Apostle Paul said this, it is in the face of Jesus that we are able to see and know the glory of God. For God said, let there be light in the darkness. He has made his light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So pastor, what's all this mean? It means three things. First, God's blessings without God's presence aren't a blessing at all. Second, God's blessings without God's people are not a blessing at all. We ought to love the church more. We ought to pray for the church more. We ought to serve the people of God more rather than less. Third, let's pray, God, show me your glory. And when and how he shows us his glory is through his word. We open up the word and we say, show us your glory. And the spirit of God takes the word of God and works in our lives so that we see more clearly, more definitively, more insightfully who Jesus Christ is, what he's done on our behalf. That's the glory of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John said, and we beheld his glory. We aren't there, but we have this book that tells us about it. So the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and reveals to us the Son of God in this book. So we read this book and we cry out, show me your glory. And as we see his glory in this book, the American dream isn't nearly as powerful as it once was in its grist on us. The mirage that keeps us from loving the people of God the way that God loves them is no longer holding the grip on us that it once had. And the staleness of our spiritual lives, which we all experience, the dryness which we all occasionally go through, begins to be, begins to be saturated with the experience of God's, with the experience of God's glory. I'm going to lead us in a, in a prayer. I think Victor will come and lead us in song in just a moment. And, and maybe that you would like to talk to someone today about your spiritual life. Maybe you'd like to talk to someone today about, about church membership. But I'd, I'd like to ask you to stand and let me lead us in a brief prayer. Then we're all going to, all going to sing together. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much that as we study a book, about an ancient people that it has so much to say to us who are a contemporary people. And Father, we thank you that it instructs us about who you are. 
your loving kindness, your compassion, your forgiveness, your willingness to go with us. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that in these final moments you would, you would speak to our hearts, bring a few things that we've studied from your word to the forefront of our minds that we can sink our teeth into as we leave this place and, and enter a new week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.